Good morning. I want you to consider the person to your right or left. You may or may not know them. You may, uh, maybe that was the person who dragged you here this morning, but is that person human? I mean, would you consider that person human? What would it take? Some of the kids are looking at their parents like, (laughs) sometimes I wonder, what would it take for you to doubt whether they were human or not? What would it take for them to do or for them to act in a certain way for you to doubt whether they were human or not? It would take a lot, wouldn't it? I mean, sometimes we use that expression when we're watching some sort of sporting event, maybe. You see LeBron James do something crazy. Uh, Some guy a couple weeks ago did 20 points and 20 assists in the same game. There are things that seem superhuman, and we make that expression, man, he's, that's like God. We don't really mean it, do we? But, by the way, did you know Michael Jordan, his, his secret, like, code name for his security detail is Yahweh. So he sort of sees himself godlike. But anyway, we realize, though, in principle, that maybe they have good genes, they worked really hard, but they're not really God. Well, one amazing thing about the early church is that the first real substantial heresies were not trying to figure out how is Jesus divine. It's trying to actually argue that Jesus was human. The first substantial heresies, many of them were were Gnostic in form, which means that if God were to become human or, or appear among us, surely he's not really going to be human. And so a lot of these these heresies would actually try to argue, maybe he just seemed to be human. Maybe it was just like a mask that he put on so that he could talk to us and speak our language and look like us so we could relate better. But isn't it amazing that the, the first thing that the early church had to deal with first in general, is how to understand God as human. Only later, when you have heresies like Arius' heresy, the Arian heresy, do they then try to understand, okay, he was human, how then can we understand that he also was God? But think about that for a second. That what Jesus did apparently was so incredible, his miracles, his resurrection... The thing that the the so-called followers of Christ stumbled on was, how is he human still? That's what we're going to look at and and try to meditate on today. And I want to tell you, I want to admit that this may be doubly hard for you to hear and understand. Because, for two reasons. One is, it's Christmas. And we all know what Christmas is about. I mean... Christmas is about, okay, Jesus in a manger, lots of presents, lots of joy, lots of singing. Maybe you may have heard a Christmas sermon every year of your life. This may be your first, but you at least know the general story. And so I would not be surprised if many of you are coming, really looking forward to tonight, really looking forward to tomorrow morning, 
right, especially the kids. We just need to get past this Christmas sermon because we know what's coming. It's going to be hard for us to really hear the Word of God anew and afresh. But it's doubly hard, not only because it's Christmas, but because we're going to be trying to understand why it's so important that Jesus was human. And that, to us, seems obvious. Doesn't it? I mean, even today, you have critical atheistic historians who will admit, yeah, of course there was a guy named Jesus who was human. But I want us to consider, why is it so important that what Hebrews calls the the Son of God became human? And so we are coming to the end of our Advent series. We've uh, we've done, this is the fourth series in our Advent series, and, and we're taking this opportunity not because we think God has bound us to celebrate Christmas. If you wake up tomorrow morning, you don't have a Christmas tree, and you don't have presents, you are not violating any command of God, so do not feel bound by that in any way. Um, So that is important to say, that we're really just taking this opportunity that our whole, our, our, so much of our culture is dominated by to try to speak into what Christmas is, what is the coming of Christ about. And this is, in many ways, the sort of climax of that series, because we're going to try to understand if he's human, then he's actually bringing us from death to life. That's the reason he became human. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. Father, we ask that you would show us Christ, that your Holy Spirit would be powerful, that we would not have hard hearts, that you would soften us, that you would comfort the brokenhearted, comfort the lonely among us, comfort those who this is a time of grief and mourning, We pray that you would give us the joy that only Christ can get. That we would actually trust and believe that God became human. He took on our flesh for our sake that we may live. We pray that you would speak to us now by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to an amazing passage, but I want to set the stage a little bit just with the context of the, of the letter. This is the letter to Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it, um, but it's, uh, it seems to be written to a group of Jewish Christians, Judaizing Christians of some sort. So there's a lot of emphasis on the Old Testament. We're going to come to that more in a second. But he starts off by a really amazing few verses in the book of Hebrews. So in chapter 1... Let me just read you this, the sort of prologue to the whole book. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, meaning the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He then goes on to talk about why he is superior to angels, but we're not going to talk so much about that. Let me just bring out a couple things in that short paragraph. The first is that he's the heir of all things, meaning everything belongs to Christ. It's all meant to go to him. 
And not only is he, is he the heir, like he's the inheritor, he's even the one through whom all things were created. If you think about the story of creation, how does he create? How does God create? He creates by his word, by speaking things into existence, which, however, we're supposed to understand that it's miraculous, but it's also by words. He creates by speaking. And so this Son of God is the one who, through whom all things have been created. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus says in, in the Gospel of John, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Which means when, when God shines, when God is manifest most fully, it's Jesus Christ. And the next phrase, the exact imprint of his nature, meaning there's nothing that God is holding back that he didn't show us in Jesus. It's exhaustive. Everything that we need to know about God is in Jesus Christ. These are amazing, amazing statements. He then goes on to say, after he made purification for sins, he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Meaning, he's, he's, at the, the, he's the right hand man. He's the one with power. So he has this huge view of the Son of God. And when we come to our passage, it's this same Son of God, divine person, who becomes human. It's that same one. So you don't want to forget this first part, because the rest of this, we're really going to be talking about his humanity. But you lose the sense of grace and the magnitude of what's happening if we forget who this person is. But when we get to our passage in chapter 2, which we heard read, I want to look at first why we should behold the Savior, our brother. We're going to look later at why we should behold the Savior who suffers and then the Savior who wins. But first, behold the Savior, your brother. At the start of our passage, he quotes from Psalm 8. He writes, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And that psalm, if we read the rest of it in context, is getting at what is humanity's job on earth. So this psalm is referencing us back even further to Genesis 1 about humanity's call. What are we supposed to do? What is God's vocation upon our life? And in general, it's to subject things. All, all the earth, we're supposed to take care of it. We're supposed to be little princes under the king. We're supposed to be cultivating the garden. That's the call of all humanity. That's what we are supposed to do. Now, we failed. The ones who were supposed to be kings became enslaved. And he connects this, surprisingly, to Jesus. He says that purpose that humanity was supposed to to accomplish, that's what Jesus did. Did you catch that? This psalm that everyone otherwise would have read as applying to humanity, this is your job to take care of, of the animals, to take care of the earth, to fulfill God's mandate upon us, that applies to Jesus. 
Jesus fulfills that. All right, what does that mean? I want to look at a, a few ways in which the author goes on to explain that, how he shares that mandate, that call for us. One, he says that he shares in flesh and blood. He goes out of his way to say that he partook of the same things of us, or he, he had in common, he was, he was among us in all ways. Now, this, of course, is, is mysterious, but there's a couple things I want us to note about this. One, if you're writing to Jews, and this is what makes so much of, of the very first Christians mind-blowing, is that they're a bunch of Jews. And what do Jews know if they know one thing? They know that the Sabbath is on the sixth day, and they know that God is one. That God is invisible. That God is very, very, very transcendent. And then he says, that one, that's the one who shares in flesh and blood. That's the one who, in Colossians 1, we're told he is the image of the invisible God, or even the icon of the invisible God. How how surprising should that be to us? This is not talking to, maybe you imagine the ancient world as a bunch of polytheists, and they believe in all sorts of different gods who are almost like shapeshifters and can take the form of humans whenever they want. You know, it's it's kind of like, oh, what's that? Maui and Moana who just like turns into an eagle and then he turns into a human and he turns into all, that's that's just not who these people would have would have been. That's not what they believed. That's not what's happening in, in the first church. He's writing to Jews who were diehard monotheists, and he says, Your God shares your flesh and blood. He has become so intimate to you that it took several hundred years for the church to really understand and explain what this means. But it's not, it's not that the body is a hollow cavity and God sort of slits in. It's not that. Almost every analogy fails because he shares in all ways our humanity. Hebrews explains it even more. By going to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, you, you heard it read. That was our Old Testament passage. Psalm 22 is an amazing psalm. The first two-thirds of it are really about the cross. You may have wondered, oh, I expected a joyful, happy Christmas service, and now we've got Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then there's a number of different instances that, that happen at the cross that are foreshadowed in Psalm 22. They wag their heads. They say, why can't he save himself? They cast lots for his garments. He's crying out for God to save him. But then, in the passage that Hebrews quotes, almost out of nowhere in the psalm, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. That psalm, it's almost as if it contains the cross and the resurrection right there. Because all of a sudden you have who apparently is the resurrected Messiah leading us in worship. What some people call now the singing Savior in Psalm 22. He has been forsaken. He has been mocked and humiliated. 
And then you get to, I will sing among my brothers. The, the word congregation there can just as well be translated assembly or church. You get the sense that he's calling us brothers and leading us in worship. That Psalm 22 goes through this horror of death, but then comes out the other end leading us in worship as the raised Savior and then proclaiming to all the nations, to all the posterity, even to the unborn, towards the end of that psalm, even to the unborn he's thinking of who are going to worship God. That's what Hebrews uses to say, he's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. You, he is your brother. The God of the universe who we just heard about in chapter one as the heir of all things, the, the power by whom and through whom all things were created, that one is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. You get a sense of this intimacy now. This union that he is showing us to behold. He does the same thing with that reference to the children. That he wants to identify with us. And Christmas time for, for many of us, whether we admit it or not, can be a very lonely time. It can remind us of, of uh, grief, of family Deaths, it can remind us of, of all sorts of, of, of sadness and, and the joy and the plastic superficial stuff that surrounds it can often make that worse. And man, what amazing news this is to say, God has shared your life. He has taken on your very nature. It's hard to... to come up with, with an analogy. I mean, if you've been a part of, of a team, either at work or a sports team, and you have this sense of, of common mission, common purpose, and there are people who will go to bat for you, there are people who are engaged in this same sort of, of, of calling, then you know that you're not alone. You know that you're not isolated, and, and even that makes it makes the suffering worth it because you build relationships with your teammates, as a lot of uh, athletes say, or you build relationships with your coworkers. And you're, you're sort of going through the same thing. And that gets you closer together and your relationship gets deeper and deeper. That's what's happening here with what he calls the founder of our salvation. That word founder could mean captain, could mean leader, forerunner. He's the one who fights your battles. He's the one who descends to lead you and to share in your life. Now, if we're honest, I think one big um, struggle we may have with this is kind of like those early church heresies, how could God be, how could, how could he really become a human? I mean, aren't we, aren't we too low for that? Aren't we too dirty? I mean, flesh and blood, that's kind of, really? 
God became that low to become like one of us? You know, I'm not, I'm not willing to become a dog. I think that's below me. Maybe, I'm sorry, maybe you think it's not, but it's some, that's something of the distance. And it seems, it seems honest, it seems relevant for us to say, okay, surely God doesn't really become human. But that, I think, is really a false type of humility. It's like saying, oh, I'm too screwed up, God can't use me. I'm too screwed up, God can't meet me, God can't save me. And we think we're being humble when we're being an ironic sort of pride because we're saying, God, you're not strong enough to reach this far down. We're making a claim on God when we don't even realize it because we're saying, sorry, God, I'm out of your reach. You're not out of his reach. You're not out of his reach. Don't think you have to have this sort of fake modesty, fake humility, and think that that's ennobling because it's not. You're making a claim on the one who created all things. That he really is powerful enough to remain God and stoop down. Further down than you can imagine. It's such incredible dignity that is given to humanity. Not only are we created in the image of God, God in the second person of the Trinity takes on human nature. It's, it's what we were, we were meant to be crowned with glory and honor. We are meant to be raised to a new life with Christ, even reign with Christ. We're told in Ephesians 2 that we are united to him who's in heaven now. That's, that's what we're meant for. So we don't have to shy away. I mean, that's not being arrogant or prideful. That's simply who we are. That's our nature. That's what you were meant for. It's pretty incredible. And he takes this on as as a priest. We're going to come back more to the priest, but you get that sense of him representing us as a priest should. This ultimate act of compassion that he speaks our language in in an incredible way. He doesn't just, it's not like falling in love with someone who speaks French and learning French. It's becoming all things French is something like the identity that he shares with us. But we got to move on because solidarity with us is not enough. There's a lot that we can talk about, and, and I hope that makes you want to behold your Savior who is your brother, but that's not enough. We, we don't just need God to be human and to be among us and sort of be on our team. And so the second part, behold the Savior who suffers, which comes up a lot in our passage as well. It's solidarity with a purpose, if you will, where several times he says he was made perfect through suffering. He encountered suffering. He was tested and he was, he even tasted death. Now it seems like part of what's going on with this suffering is that it makes the solidarity that he has with us even more real. Because you can't say, yeah, you are human, but it wasn't really hard for you, was it? No, it was hard. He really suffered. In the mystery of, of God taking on human nature, he really did suffer. He sweated blood in Gethsemane. He was really tempted. It was a real incarnation. The identity goes that deep. 
And that's often what Hebrews will, uh, will argue, will claim, that the very end of this passage, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He tasted death for us. He tasted death for us. Can you imagine what it would be like to die for someone? I don't really, I wouldn't really claim to, to know that, but to die for someone who totally abandoned you. The way that this death gets, gets uh, explained is that big word in verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The author's taken a big word there from the Old Testament about how how is the priest going to deal with our sins? How is he going to deal with a unholy, unclean, sinful people who are trying to come into the presence of God? He's going to have to deal with the anger and the justice of God. That's going to have to be dealt with. We should want that to be dealt with. And we're told that Jesus, as our merciful and faithful high priest didn't take something else, didn't take a lamb as a slaughter to to deal with our sins. He himself made himself the sacrifice for our sins. The priest is almost like the priest jumped on the altar of the sacrifice for the sins of his people. He dealt with the justice, and the judgment that we deserve. As we heard briefly just a few minutes ago, we know how God deals with our sins. Do you know that? Do you know that for yourself? Or is it still a mystery? You're still not sure what God does with your sins. What God does with not just the things that you do superficially, some of your behavior, but the deep nature type sins. Do you know how God reacts? Because we're told by the exact imprint of God's nature, we're told what he does with it. He tastes death in our place. He suffers in our place as our perfect human representative. But he doesn't only suffer, he wins. And that's the Final point I want to meditate on because he clearly has accomplished something according to Hebrews. He has destroyed the power of the devil. Let's think about what this means. He's destroyed the one who has the power of death and he has rescued those who were subjected to lifelong slavery out of fear of death. Death, we are told, has lost its sting. As Paul says. So ask yourself, do you fear death? Do you? Now this is, um, you know, depending on where you are at, older, younger, middle, you think about death in different ways. Our culture in general, I would say, either tries to hide it or fight against it till till. till to the very last moment. And if you notice that's 
so ridiculous because it's the one thing we know will absolutely come unless Jesus returns. Death is the guarantee, but we try to act as if it doesn't exist. We try to act as if if we ignore it, it's going to go away. If we don't talk about it, it's going to go away. If it's not a real thing, it's the one real thing we know is going to happen. And the good news of the gospel is that he has destroyed, he has rescued you from that fear. Because why? Now, some of you younger guys are like, I don't need to think of death. It's going to be 60, 70 years or more. Death, death is more than just bodily death, right? It's, it's like that climax. It's all the limitations that we feel. It's all the lack of control that we feel. It's all the ways that we fear we are insufficient, that we are changing too much. Are you enslaved to that fear? Are you enslaved to it? Like a terrible master? Because it, it itself won't go away. It itself won't go away. So you can either live enslaved to that fear or receive this rescue, this redemption from it in Christ. Do you know what would happen if you were to die tomorrow? Do you know what would happen? I mean, if it's, if we're all just material, if we're all just gonna go back to the ground and, and be uh, composted. It doesn't seem like a lot of this should matter. This is something that we should know. This is something that we should be sure about. And in this incredible story, we have the very source of life itself. The source of life. Entering a world of death. Going through death and coming out the other side. Not just to show off, not just on his own. He does it as our representative, as our forerunner, bringing us along in his train. That's the picture of Christmas that he entered. The source of life entered. Entered this place of death so that we would be freed. So that, so that we would be freed. Hallelujah. And he is now, we are told, crowned with honor and glory. This, as I mentioned before, was was hinted at in the prologue. After making purification for sins, we read, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But if you're a close reader, you may be wondering, the crown with honor and glory, didn't, didn't that have to do with just how we were created? So back in Psalm 8, remember, we were given a certain job to take care of the world under God's overall lordship. And we were made in the image of God, crowned with honor and glory. That's sort of who we are supposed to be. Hebrews, not only, this passage in Hebrews not only says it applies to Jesus insofar as he does humans' job that we failed at, it also says Jesus now is crowned with glory and honor. How is he crowned with glory and honor? Through the resurrection. Through the ascension, the fact that he sits at the right hand. How could that be how Jesus crowned with honor and glory, but we were meant to be created with honor and glory? It seems like he's restoring what we were meant to be in the first place. We were meant to live in perfect 
union with God. Perfect dependence, communion with God. And so the resurrection actually gets us back to where we were supposed to live in the first place. We're, we are crowned with glory and honor now by faith. As we struggle through this, this in-between time, Jesus is there by sight. It's like he's one step ahead of us. He's the one who is crowned, and that's where our treasure is. That's where our heart is. That's where the, the power and source of our life comes now. And I love how the passage in Hebrews is so honest. Did you catch that? Right after he quotes the psalm in verse 8, he says in verse 9, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Yes! Yes! Thank you for naming that, right? Thank you for being honest. Yeah, we don't. We don't. If this is supposed to be true, it's not happening. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. What's different? We're just celebrating it again. What's different? We do not yet see that. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now let's put this put this uh, together to to conclude. Put this together of, of what he's saying that yeah, of course we don't see it by sight. It doesn't look like Jesus is a very good king right now. There's a lot of violence and death and sin in our own selves in the world. It clearly is happening. In First Corinthians 15, Paul talks about something very similar when. We are waiting for all of Jesus' enemies to come under his footstool. But this is a time of that waiting, that he's already on the throne in heaven, and we're sort of waiting for everyone to be subdued to him. And that's why, by the grace of God, he tasted death so that we would have this chance to repent. Now is this time, as we wait, Jesus has ascended as king. Our human representative is still human as king, and now we have this time to look around, to see the sin and death of this world that God entered, and say, there has to be more. There has to be more than this. There's got to be more than this. Even when God himself came and became human, we rejected him. The Romans and the Jews, the, the, the political geniuses and the religious geniuses, if you will, they both rejected him. There's got to be more than this. And he says, yeah, yeah, there is more. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus is raised. Your Savior is the one who intimately knows you. Intimately knows you better than you know yourself. And not only that, he doesn't know that from above. He knows that from experience, having become human. Do you know this Savior? Do you know this Savior as perfect? He was made perfect through suffering and death. Meaning there's nothing as a Savior that he was left to do that he forgot to do. He was made perfect. Do you know your sins have been wiped away? Do you know that? 
behold this Savior who against all expectations became human. And so we have been listening to Christmas songs at the mall for a month. We have, there's been so much hoopla and preparation for this, this thing that our culture celebrates. That's what it's all about. That the one who is the exact imprint of God's nature, the glory of God, when he shines, he shines Jesus. It is that one who became in all ways, in all respects, human. To taste your life, not just to taste the good parts, not just to taste the pleasure, but to taste the pain, to taste the suffering, to taste the death. What part of your life do you think God hasn't tasted in Christ? What, what sin do you think is outside of this tasting, this condescension of God? This is the Savior. And so the book of Hebrews, in this first section, in chapter 4, it concludes this way. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what happens now when we draw near to God. We don't meet a fire of judgment. We don't need thundercloud. We don't have to be afraid, even of death. Even when the judgment of your whole life is going to be meted out, we don't longer have to be afraid of that. Because when we draw near in Christ, we draw near to the human Jesus who saved you. Praise God. Praise be to his glorious grace. Let's take a moment and pray.